Hello, listener. It's your dynamic duo of creativity and co-host, Chris. And Rick. Featured on Today, Fox, CNN, and other major media outlets, Ruby Roth is a figurative artist and award-winning author-illustrator of a series of leading children's books. For the past several years, amidst a radical transition from a decade of familial life as a best-selling children's book author-illustrator to self-determined independence as a female artist, Roth has explored the deep end of the feminine spectrum and its archetypes through her depictions of the female form. She recently released a new illustrated memoir about a side of her personal life that she kept hidden during her time in the spotlight. Boss Inside is a revealing collection of private journal entries, artwork, and photographs that chronicles the evolution and disintegration of a 14-year relationship with her life partner whose daughter she helped raise, along with the aftermath as she reclaimed her life, her art, career, femininity, sexuality, and relationship to men and masculinity. Here's your conversation with Ruby Roth. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Origins. Today, we are very lucky to have a very special guest on here, Ruby Roth. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been excited for a month. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're excited. We're very excited, and we'd like to start the show like we start every show. And I will ask you to tell us about your origin story. Tell us about your creative journey. All right. Well, it goes all the way back to childhood. It was known in the family as an artist, so it seemed like that was just bound to happen professionally. I was actually diagnosed with scoliosis, a curvature of the spine, at three years old and saw my bones and my crooked spine on an x-ray at that time. And that kind of set off a lifelong obsession with the bodies that we live in. And so I was always drawing bodies and I ended up wearing a back brace for 13 years, starting when I was six. And so I developed this very internal life and art became an outlet to deal with the pain and also as a way for me to live vicariously through other bodies that were free. And and I was into like Tank Girl and Heavy Metal Magazine and like all these strong images of, of very powerful women. And so that was developing in my interests young. And I got into children's books outside of college because I was teaching art at an after-school program and did that focus for about a decade plus and have recently just brought my personal artwork, which is back to feminine figures, back to the forefront. So that's that's super nutshell. We can go backwards if you want. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got to go quick backward. Pink girl. Yeah. As soon as I saw that film, it was, it was a favorite. Okay. So my surprise on tank girl is, you know, it's very, how do you say unmainstream and, and, you know, I don't like to use the word underground because it wasn't underground, but it's not a lot of mainstream, but just a, and it's a fabulous, fabulous book. What about tank girl really got you? I think that she was a badass but also she, she had a cause right there was like the the through line of that book is water rights and and fighting the powers that be and and i also grew up kind of punk rock and got into punk rock and hip hop and so i was always kind of 
tuned, attuned to kind of counter cultural. And so the, the fact that she was fighting for righteous causes, I think was, was the thing that got me. And just that, I mean, it was so creative, the clothing, the, the illustrations, just, I mean, the boyfriend that was, yeah, like half animal, half human. Um, I just loved it. I loved all of it. And we're a little off the origin, but yeah, Ruby, the little bit I know about you in Tank Girl, it's like the perfect fit, even even stylized wise. Uh, did it influence your art? Better way to ask the question: Did it influence the way you drew? Is it like one of the first early inferences on your style as well? It's a good question. I think I was a it, well. It didn't. I didn't discover that. I didn't discover it till maybe like early adolescence. So I was already drawing previous to that. And if there was an influence on my style, it maybe came from all kinds of things. But I think primarily the biggest, the biggest influence on the development of how I distort the figure was from wearing that back brace. And that back brace was actually physically formative it was really intense contraption and it, it pushed and pulled and, you know, squeezed in different ways. And the insides, they build up with padding to push me further and further. And so I developed like very flat side of my rib cage on one side and an indent on my hips on the other and welts on my, on my body that like turned into permanent scars. So I was looking at bodies and, and drawing from, live figures as a way to accept, find acceptance of my own body and my own asymmetry and to see the beauty in all bodies helped accept, helped me accept my own and the cards that I was dealt. So that, because I was, I was asymmetrical, I kind of exaggerated that in my drawing style. And so you'll also see it in my drawings kind of hard geometric shapes mixed with soft curves, rounder shapes. And that comes, I think, directly from the experience in my body of, of wearing that brace. That's super fascinating. And thank you for sharing your story because I've had other people in my life that have also dealt with scoliosis and had varying things, whether it's back surgery or they've dealing with the impacts of not having it treated earlier on. And so like, I think this idea of you taking this very personal pain and challenge and transforming it into sort of a new vision and a new way of sharing kind of this inner world with the, your inner world with the outer world is super cool. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about your period as a doing children's books. So what was when you were doing that, were you still doing kind of your personal art on the side or was it just so focused on the children's book stuff that like that was taking a hold? Could you tell me a little bit more maybe about how you balanced those two? Yeah. Coming out of college, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be, I wanted to do art beyond self-expression. So I think I was interested in illustration and, and, you know, mixing that with the cause or mixing that with an, another purpose other than just, art for art's sake. But my first job out of college was teaching art at an after-school program. And 
the kids noticed that I wasn't eating what they were eating at recess, which was like string cheese and milk. And they started asking questions. I had gone vegan a handful of years previous to that. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go find a book. Um, surely there is one and we can bring it in and, you know, we'll, we'll make an art project out of uh, explaining this lifestyle. And when I went to go look for a book, I couldn't find one. I think there was one, it was like, a, it was a talking tomato. And these kids were like street smart, like beyond their years. And it's just was not the kind of book that I was going to read to them. It's not even how I spoke to them. So I put, I had majored in art and American studies, which is kind of a political and social look at the underbelly of American history. I was always interested in more than just art, but I put those two interests together and ended up writing a series of books. They were the first books of their kind in children's literature, nonfiction about the veganism and the motives behind the movement. So that it, it kind of happened by accident. It was a it was a fight at the beginning because it this was early in the market where veganism wasn't a household term like it is now. And so it was a real push to get to find a publisher who would say yes. And finally we did. And so that ended up being a huge part of my life. I was also in a family structure at the time. I was in a very long-term relationship with someone who was my mentor and I was helping raise his daughter as my own. So it made sense with my life. I was, it was the height of blogging. I was blogging about veganism and and speaking about it, you know, around the country at different veg fests and everything. So it became, there are four books in the series and then one additional book that's about emotional well-being for all kids. But it just kind of happened and I was always doing my figurative art on the side. But the children's books took center stage as far as marketing and branding. And I really built uh, a, a worldwide big audience around these books and did a lot of media because they were the books were considered controversial at the time. I don't think they would be today, but my second book hit major media and I did the Today Show and Fox and CNN arguing about the validity of veganism. It wasn't even like it, I never spoke about my art or you know my my life as an artist. It was just straight up like I became a spokesperson for the movement. Oh, this this is super cool. And the thing that I love is because we keep hearing this thread from everybody, like, you know, following their passions or there's not the book out there. Like, oh, my God, it's not out there. I'll, you know, OK, I'll just do it. And then this massive tidal wave comes and just carries you through this. And the thing I, I love to break down to people is, OK, so you start this, right? Oh, I'll just do this book. Can you talk through when you're starting this out before, you know, Fox News and CNN start calling you, what were some of the hurdles and challenges you had getting it started? And, and things you didn't even think of, like, you know, oh, I'm just going to make a book. Oh my God, this is not what I thought it was. <laughs> one of the first biggest, oh, there are so many, one of the first biggest lessons was that I had, I had written the book and done sketches of the illustrations before I started pitching to publishers. So I had a stack of papers of rejections. It was a no, 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 no. And then it was a no, we're interested, but then no. And then we pushed and pushed and pushed and convinced them. 
once it was in their hands, the first big, one of the biggest professional lessons to me is that you are now, as an author, you're working with the team. It's not your book now. There's people investing in your book and they own part of it. They own the actual concept of the book as a book and there's marketing to think about and writing to think about. So there was a clash early on with me and the editors and I had written 1500, it was a 1500 word book at the time. And they were like, we need to cut it down to 500 words. And I was like, no, you guys don't get me. <laughs> like, this is going to be a different kind of book. It's different. And they were like, no, you're not going to have a book. It's going to be cut down and you're going to, you're going to make it. A There's rules. There's some rules to, to book writing. And so you need to abide by some of these rules. And so that was huge. I almost, you know, I was enraged. I didn't want, I thought that I, you know, locked myself into something I couldn't get out of, that they were wrong and they weren't wrong. It was too long. It was too much for a picture book. And I had to adjust by the second book. I had learned my lesson. And I went, as I was writing the manuscript, I was thinking about being on a team and that there would be feedback and that, from then on, I would pick and choose my battles, know what I was going to stick to and the hills that I was going to die on and know what I could give them. And I also learned the strategy of going into a meeting, taking all of the notes, saying, I hear you. I'm going to take, let me, give me a few, a uh, few days to think about your notes and get back to you. Say yes to everything at first and then come back having thought out what the negotiation is. I'll, I'll give you these changes. These are why, these are changes I don't wanna make and here's why. And usually a team is much more open to your feedback if you have really good reasons and you've also accepted some of the changes that they've offered. I think that's super great advice for one. Can you maybe share a little bit more of how did you kind of get through that feeling of like being trapped or that you were you know like you're stuck and you know angry and like they're changing my book like this isn't my vision because I think that happens a lot of times right is we as creatives will come up with a product or a book or a film or whatever and then oh cool we have a deal now we're it's not just me to your point it's a team and then oh now all of these changes want to happen like how could you maybe share how did you resolve that? Because I've seen a lot of artists just burn bridges as opposed to figure out maybe a, a more collaborative way forward. And so could you walk us through that? Yeah, I think it's a mark of professionalism and leveling up when you decide that the team you're working on is they're not your enemy. They want a good product. And I went to them because in it, in the first place because I liked the books that they put out. And so I had to remember that the books that they put out also went through this process. And it was just a moment of realizing where, these are also professionals, where are they right? And it was, it was a moment of just self-realization to go, okay, I have, the book will do better if I cut out all the, the fat and 
really be able to like synthesize the message down to the easiest, simplest way of putting it. And luckily for me, they didn't have a lot of feedback on the artwork. There was a second time around, I had designed a cover that was really just about the title, Vegan is Love. It was like a big heart instead of the O. And they wanted, they wanted a, a more powerful illustration. And I, you know, I was also on a deadline by then. I was like, oh my God, I have to create, you know, a whole new book file. And like, I really didn't want to do it. And again, I realized, you know, this is an opportunity for me to grow as an artist, that some of these notes are pushing me to be better. And they were right. And I ended up taking an image that I had already done for the interior of the book and kind of isolating some of the characters and creating a new background. And, and so reusing something that I loved already from, from the interior. So it's really about trusting the journey that you're becoming better and better and you're becoming more professional and you're learning to play the game of business too, which is partly negotiation and partly standing firm in what you believe in most. If you really can't do it, if it's really a no-go, then don't do it. But if it's really about ego and or time or, you know, some other excuse that you can talk yourself out of, you can always try too. You can try to, don't throw away what you've done, accept the note, try something different, and then you'll have more power to say, I tried it this way, but I don't like it, or I tried it this way and uh, you're right. It's better. Ruby, that is so well done. As someone who's 90% of his career has always been in corporate, yeah. as I totally get what you say. And we, and I've used this term a bunch. I didn't come up with it. My friend, Kevin Brown, shout out Kevin Brown, came up with it. He calls it creative tension. If you get good creative tension with someone, you're actually going to get something better than what you started with. And it's not easy. I still get it. Like my heart tightens up. I get a little heat in my cheeks. Like it's, it's not nothing. And maybe it's not ever going to be nothing. It's like, you know, a sense of a fight coming, but it's true. If you can just kind of settle and, and the more professional you get is like, you put up your catcher's mitt and you go, I got this. I, I know what this is. I see what's coming here. I know what has to be done now. And it's, and it's a great, that's a great way to say it. Like mine is, pull out an old fashioned. Okay, fine. Like, you know, <laughs> exactly. there's some way to, which is, but it's completely different from when you're doing the self-expression stuff. So, you know, corporate is like, you're talking about this creative tension and building something with a team better where your personal art is much more personal. I mean, True. it's in the fucking word. <laughs> yeah well you know in that as far as personal art and fine art you may have i'd say you may have less uh this is where i was going yes but yeah, there's still yeah. a little bit right so i i, I yeah, wonder if you can compare the two yeah well with with galleries i haven't run into it yet you know as much um i feel like maybe if it maybe it starts to happen if you kind of establish a certain aesthetic style something that distinguishes your art everybody knows it's you maybe even you know a color palette that's associated with you 
And then if that becomes successful, the gallery or your manager or like whoever you're working with kind of wants you to stick to that style for the next 80,000 years. God forbid you change, you know, a color. But I can see it happening in that way. But it's almost like until you get to a certain level of success, you're on your own with, you know, you can change up as much as you want. But even your own audience will do that to you, too. Like, if, you know, we've all seen it. We see it happen all the time with musical artists, right? Like when the Beastie Boys kind of switched from, like, hip-hop to electronica, people are like, no, I'm not I'm not messing with you anymore. Or that's not the Beastie Boys I knew. But there has to be wiggle room for evolution, I think, with creativity is always evolving. But it can become an issue. You know, you might switch up your subject matter and your audience might dip because you, you changed and they want to see you do, you know, th th there's a, several artists who do like the same, I mean, like there's the teddy bear one. It's just a teddy bear, every teddy bear, you know, like every single one is teddy. There's nothing else. So how could that, how could that guy do anything else? They would probably, you know, the audience would probably leave. So there's definitely traps and pitfalls along the way, no matter, you know, what route you take. And, you know, for some reason it, people's minds get used to, you know, associating you with, with a certain thing. That was it. That was a huge crossroads for me that I'm still kind of dealing with the, the fallout of the switching from children's to a, adult art and not only adult art but kind of erotic edgy nude figurative work where there's kind of a sexual nature to it so yeah I'm definitely experiencing the giant split so thank you for sharing Ruby and I am super fascinated you've actually seen this happen right of oh so you were doing children's book you have you garner a certain type of audience and then now suddenly we're like oh we're doing nude women there's a an erotic aspect to it and then people are like my kids eyes right like there's this backlash so can you tell me more about how are you navigating that change what did it look like as you were saying oh maybe i'm not doing children's book anymore and i'm really focusing on this as kind of my full-time career how did you navigate that with your audience it was a rocky road and I joke that like my audience was used to seeing baby chickens, like baby chicks, and now they're seeing big chicks. <laughs> so we're dealing with it. In 2016, I left that relationship that I had been in. We had lived together for 10 years. So all I had known this person since I was 20 and had kind of devoted 14 years of my life to some kind of relationship with him. So when I left, it was... I was no longer a stepmom officially. I was no longer making lunches every day and, you know, being in kind of a mommy role. And I was very scared. I also had to come up with a new way to support myself. And that's when I started bringing my personal art to the foreground. And I was very scared that if I started talking about what I was now experiencing, which was, you know, I was single I was experiencing my body in a new way. I was experiencing sexuality in a new way. I had not been single basically since I was 20. I was experiencing men and masculinity a new way. I thought 
this is going, if I say anything, this is going to ruin everything that I've established. And I had established such a strong branding product. I had such a clear message. I had a clear audience. I had a clear inspiration story of having worked with kids and, and also raising a vegan child. I was really faced a crossroads of like, how am I going to do this? And I did make, I think in hindsight, I made a big mistake. I should have started a new, new accounts in social media for my adult work and just dealt with starting over again and taking the time with my current audience to kind of educate them about what I was now offering on a different channel under my umbrella and getting to see if some people would migrate over. So what ended up happening was I started a new account for my children's stuff and told told people, so I did it the opposite way and told my, I, I didn't want to, I was so painful to start from scratch that I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I thought some, some of this giant audience will come along with me. And I, at the time it was the Facebook's heyday. I was reaching 250,000 people a week organically with my posts. And so I, I just thought, I don't want to lose that audience. I'm going to start feeding them my new artwork and see who comes along. And algorithmically it was a disaster. I mean, talk about changing. It's not only humans, but like the bots and the algorithms are reading what your topics are. And they're also reading what your followers interests are. And so I think right away, yeah, it was a huge clash. And right away, my numbers started dropping, dropping. And at the same time, Facebook and, and everything meta started to become pay to play. And so even if I found, even if I wanted to boost a post and give money to Meta, that my posts were then being rejected because there was nudity. Not only if it didn't even have to be nudity in, I could choose a piece of art, art that didn't have nudity in it, but Instagram wouldn't send anyone to my website because my website contained quote unquote nudity. So this was, it was such a huge problem. And so in the last few years, I wish I could have, I wish I would have done it a little bit differently. And so it's kind of a lesson to anyone. There's so many multi hyphenate creatives who do different things. I'd say if you're, if you're just starting out, you can kind of do everything under your own name. But if you first see really separate audiences, start building those audiences separately. I didn't do it under different names. I still, you know, I didn't have a pen name, but on my new book and as I started putting out my figurative work, I'd added my middle name to the work that I was doing just, just to separate it a little bit. And so we'll see where that goes. But that was 2016. That was a major crossroads. And I started bringing my art, my personal art to the forefront. I'm still dealing with fallout of the algorithms and trying to shift things and, and gaining a new audience. I think also some parents might've been offended and started, you know, reporting the posts that they saw. And so I've been dealing with, you know, censorship too on that level. So things to know as you go along, but there's, you know, there's always going to be something to deal with, but yeah, I'm, I'm still, still in that crossroads, finding a new audience. That's 
absolutely completely fascinating and 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 especially on the crossroads you know i'm a big art history nut buff guy and you can see that with a lot of artists like when they switch and nobody wants to come with them right and it's fascinating and and you doing it in a digital age ruby is just like a whole nother layer to it like and because there's well, there was like shell shell silverstein you know wrote some That's of everybody's favorite books he also wrote plays and had yes. a songwriter too he, he was, was one of the most prolific writers for playboy magazine like yes. he's fascinating he's one of my faves too <laughs> but i say that the maybe you know it's because he didn't have to have a website and a web presence and i'm dealing we're all dealing with this in a completely new age the digital age these are problems of the digital age or tommy ungerer who wrote children's books award-winning children's books there's a great documentary on canopy too far i think it's called too far is not far enough or or too far out is not far enough something like that but it's about his history doing children's books and maury sendek is in it like you know speaking so highly of of Tommy and then Tommy started to do anti-war posters and erotica and this was still pre-digital age but when the media started it took a while but when they started noticing they blacklisted him America banned his books they were burning his books and he was basically pushed out of this country and he left he left the country and wasn't heard from from a long time for a long time so you know, this is also, it also brings up such a, you know, an issue that has come up throughout womanhood is like this separation of mothers and sexuality and this Madonna horror complex that we have in society where once you're considered pure, you can be ruined. You know, it's, it's like wearing a scarlet letter. We've seen it throughout history in a million different ways, or you're burned at the stake. You know, there's really high risks for women to to um, show their true selves. It hasn't always been safe throughout history to do that. And so even though I have always felt free to, to express myself, even if it was scary or I thought I was gonna, you know, lose an audience or something, I, I realized like you're kind of punished one way or another. And I experienced that digitally, you know, being punished for, stepping outside the bounds of being, you know, a, a children's book author and, and what a children's book author should look like and sound like. And that's been really interesting just on, on the womanhood front. Thank you for sharing that, Ruby, because I think especially a lot of men don't really understand a lot of those dynamics around the completely impossible double standards that are placed specifically on women. I think Men deal with it, too, in some ways, but it's so much more blatant and obvious when uh, we look at kind of how patriarchy influences our society. And so I would love to hear more about that choice, because, you know, you had all of this, all of this apprehension. You were still in some ways, you know, quote unquote, paying the price of challenging this dominant narrative around what, you know, a children's a female children's book author should be what a mother could be and so and, and with your knowledge of all of kind of the historical ways that society tries to push someone in a box you still 
made the incredibly brave choice to step outside of that. And so could you share with people, how did you find the courage to do that? Because I think there is so much fear and historical data to tell you not to do that, yet you still chose to believe in yourself and to believe in this vision. I don't even know if it was a choice. It just, it felt like, like I had to do it regardless of gender. I think we all need safe ways of expressing our truest selves and our, our most primitive emotions. And I think that's something society is maybe getting a little better at, you know, we're all kind of learning a vocabulary, a new vocabulary in the last handful of years that, allows people to be who, who they really are. It's true throughout time that when women are suppressed, it creates rage and we wither. And I think that's a, you know, throughout literature and art and, and political history, that can be seen as true. And so I also kind of in 2016, as I was bringing my art forward, I was reckoning with leaving a relationship that had become suppressive to me creatively and emotionally. And I was making a break for it. And I had also spent so much of my childhood kind of inadvertently groomed for constriction by wearing that brace and groomed to be obedient and to go with you know, whatever was happening to me, even if it was painful. And so it was a, it was a, another huge crossroads for me to say, I'm moving forward no matter what. And I'm going to, I'm breaking, I'm breaking out of the, whatever mental, physical, emotional imprisonment that I've held myself in. And there was always something in me. There was a tank girl, you know, inside me from a young age these influences are enormous not just you know on our on our creativity the artists that we grow up around it's like they make us who we are the punk rock singers taught me about politics and anti-racism and you know going against the grain and and so i had that spirit in me and i think i was just ready for a break and a break in the codes and so you know, this new book, this Boston side book is, it's an illustrated memoir of those first four years, 2016 to 20, as I reclaimed my life for myself, my creativity, my art, my sexuality, my relationship to men and masculinity itself. So it felt like I had no choice at the time, but to, you know, try to save myself. And then it's become more of something that I'm choosing and choosing and choosing over again to just push forward. Okay, Ruby, I, I got so many things I want to ask. Okay. You remind me of, do you know, you got to know who Bunny Yeager is, right? Yes, I do. Okay. So uh, quick for the audience, like Bunny Yeager, she started out as a model in the fifties, then she started making the bikinis. Like she made the bikinis and she became the most prolific to this day on pinup art. She was the photographer and it was literally because she hated how men were fucking it up. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's the best way to describe. It. So she's 
she like just took charge of it all and you know playboy and vargas you can look at everybody they steal from bunny bunny was it right yeah, yeah. and very strong feminist movement with her she's you know the power of the woman and she got a lot of her stuff of course people go oh but she was sexualizing women you know she was degrading women uh, olivia is another painter that comes to, comes to my mind so i really want to get in your book but i also want to get into um how do you like the only way I can think in my New York way to say is how do you have the balls to stand up like a bunny Jaeger and say, no, screw you. This is my life. And, and this is who I am because, and, and just put it out there and fight that whole thing and, and utilizing that book to do it. I mean, I, I think it goes back to wanting to be an artist and make art beyond self-expression, you know, to have, I'm, I'm a very sensitive being like, you can't hurt my feelings, but my senses are so sensitive. And I feel like I, you know, absorb some of the terror of this scary world that we live in and have always wanted to do my part to make it a better place. And that, that question about, you know, whether Bunny was continuing, you know, patriarchal male gaze at women, or she was actually reclaiming, you know, sexuality. I, I, you could argue both things, but I think feminism comes down to women being free to do what they want to do, what they need to do. And so it doesn't matter necessarily what the end product is. It's about women being safe to express themselves. And I don't even always, you know, uh, identify with the feminist movement because I'm also, I, I love the masculine so much and I gain so much from masculine energy and also have, have I appreciate the masculine in me. We all have, you know, a range when we're sitting out enjoying nature regardless of your gender, you might say that, you know, you're kind of in the feminine, you're absorbing the feminine of nature, you're absorbing that energy. So I've been told that my art is, you know, reclaiming sexuality for, for women. And I've been told that I'm also just perpetuating, you know, the, the, what men have always done to women is kind of the objectification of women. So I can't speak to anybody's opinion. It's like you can report me or you can flag my posts or you can applaud my posts. It doesn't matter. The post is the post. And then the post is the post because I'm following my gut instincts and I've spent a lot of time sharpening my instincts. You know, being in being in that brace, I think for 13 years, 20 plus hours a day, I had no choice but to be internal and, and to think, think things through, you know, cause I wasn't using my body in the same way that other people were, you know, in sports or even, you know, as a young girl, when other, when other girls were kind of expressing themselves and their sexuality through the clothes they wear or their personality through the clothes they wear, I was dressing like a tomboy because I had, I was hiding this thing underneath me. So I, I came to understand whatever my powers were my sexuality, my creativity, it was from the inside out. It wasn't from 
I, I wasn't from expressing myself through, you know, clothing or the car that I drove or, you know, the music that I listened to. It was, it was internal. So powerful, Ruby. And I, I really appreciate the clarity that you have around yourself and the messages that you care about and what you're looking to express. And so could you tell us a little bit more and tell the listeners a little bit more about your book and, you know, just beyond it being an illustrated memoir, could you share more with like who should pick it up and what are you trying to say with it? Yeah, I'll show you guys. This is as we, as you push forward into video. This is Boss Inside. It is a 180 page illustrated memoir. It's an outpouring of writings. This this book is straight out of my journals and my private sketchbooks as I reclaimed my life after a 14 year identity defining relationship. And I didn't know at the time as I was writing in my journal and documenting my journey in this crossroads and trying to get on my own two feet and all the emotions and the grief and the freedom and, you know, emotions colliding. I didn't know that I was writing a book. This was just my journals and this was just the art that was pouring out of me, reflecting my new experiences and my new station in life. Some years later, this is, you know, seven, almost eight years later, I realized that I had written so much that I, I could really define the arc and define, you know, stepping into a new chapter. So I started laying it out and, and picking select journal entries and going through my sketchbooks and scanning and, and really lining up. I, I didn't want to rewrite history. I did no new writing except for the introduction. I, I, for better or worse, for, you know, pride or embarrassment, I wanted to keep uh, the writing as, as it was in, in my journal. So it was really just synthesizing art that was done at the time and that related to the writing. You know, I, I was pretty good at dating everything. So I knew about, you know, what I wasn't thinking when I was, when I was sketching and drawing at the time, oh, this, this matches what I wrote about today or yesterday but I had enough artwork that it could be put together. So it's been a great relief for me to release this book. It was also one last test before I put it out. You know, I, I got, when you write a memoir, you're writing about people. And I fictionalized everybody's names, but I had a little bit of a scare, you know, legally of, of someone saying anybody can sue Someone said to me, anybody can sue anybody for anything at any time. So I had to reckon with the potential repercussions of telling your story, even though I didn't think there was anything in the book, you know, that was going to get anybody else in trouble or get anybody, you know, angry or ruin anybody's life by any means. This was just me telling a story of my experience. But it was that one last test, you know, literally right before I pressed send to the printer where I had to really question myself and say, are you, are you doing this? And you really stand by your work and how important is this book to me? And I went through this arc of like fear and doubt and then anger and then like, fuck you, get out of my way. And uh, ended up moving forward. So 
it was, you know, it's, it's a, it's a constant professionally. I think you're always going to be tested and you're always going to be evolving. And so this was just, I'm happy about the tests and the challenges that this book has offered. And it feels like a weight off my shoulders to really commit to this next chapter and this next audience and also to, to let go in some way of everything I had established about myself and my business before. And to say all the media I did, those 250K people I was reaching every week, I don't have to try to bring those accolades and that acclaim into this next project, into this next chapter. I'll build it again. I did it once, I'll do, I'll do it again. And to kind of wrap my past up in a bow, those relationships, those books, those, that position of working with children and to just trust in, trust in evolution and whatever comes next. I have said that this book will be recognized by anybody who's ever given themselves away and hopefully a lantern in the dark for anyone making their way back to their truest selves. So I've been amazed that a lot of men have ordered the book. I, I feel like it's such a feminine message, you know, for a phenomenon that mostly I feel like happens to women where we we pour ourselves into other relationships and nurturing other people and leave ourselves behind. But the feedback from both men and women has been pretty amazing. Love that. No, it honestly, Ruby, that's super inspiring. And I think it's just marvelous to see the level of trust you have in yourself and the choices you you've continually made to break the mold and to reinvent yourself and to push past the fear, I think is so inspiring for anyone who listens to this. I don't want to paint an incorrect picture to it. It's like there was plenty of crying <laughs> sitting on the floor and going like, oh my God, I, I there's there was a couple years, especially of like just financially. I don't know. I don't know how long this is going to take. It might take a handful of years to reestablish myself. And, you know, I worked, I worked, worked at those books and, and gaining an audience for a solid decade plus. So I don't, I don't want it. To, I don't want it to sound easy to anybody, or or that I didn't also take other jobs. I've I've had graphic design jobs, and editorial illustration, and done book design and layout for other folks, and have found other ways of making money and and subsidizing um, this new chapter. But I think one of the things that stops people too is is people are like, I don't have time. I don't have time to have a regular job and do my art. You really do. Like you do. You come home and you push and you you create a beautiful little comfortable space for yourself to work in and you take care of what you got to take care of and then you you work at night you work late hours even a couple hours a day devoted to you know whatever your passion is like it will do something eventually. Amen to that, and I mean I I think nevertheless even if it was hard, I think that's why it's so inspiring, Ruby, is that like, I don't think anyone would ever diminish all of the struggles that you've gone through. And I think it's just impressive that you have kept going because I think a lot of people, you know, give up because it's so difficult. And so I would love to know, do you have any piece of advice for other 
up and coming creators? I mean, you've given us so much already, but is there anything else you would like to tell that person who's, you know, working a day job and wants to be an artist or feels like, you know, maybe they're a young person who is just trying to get off the ground? Like, what would you tell them? This is a lesson that I'm still working to embody, but at some point, and it came from an, an auntie of mine, and it was during, you know, kind of this big pause as I was pushing forward. And she said to me, you're so obsessed with the production side of being an artist. She said, you need to realize you're an artist, even if you never produce anything again or you never sell anything again your artistry comes from how you wake up in the morning how you make your bed how the ritual of you know a tea that you make or the way you tend to a garden the way you listen to your friends the way you show up for your family or your community the way you raise a kid that's all creativity and that is all your artistry and selling a piece of art is just one small channel of your manifestations as an artist. It makes me emotional just thinking about it because it's, we. I know everybody in this industry puts a tremendous amount of pressure on themselves to sell and how to figure out to sell and sell, sell. But I've also learned, I'm, I'm also the type of person who doesn't need much. I don't need, like, I don't have high overhead. I'm not I'm not doing this so that I can go get a Ferrari. I really don't give a shit about material stuff. So I can also, I've, there's been times where I live really, really thin and really small, but it's, it's, that lesson is so important. And it also just puts everything into perspective. It's a, it's a selling a piece of art is not a life or death matter. The way you show up in the world is a life or death matter. How you feel inside is a life or death matter. So I'm still embodying. I'm I'm 41 now. I feel like the 40s are kind of devoted to embodying that wisdom and just being comfortable with knowing who you are, who you are as an artist without sales, without production. Ruby, that was just gorgeous and can you give your auntie a hug from me? Cause that, yeah. that is just amazing. Yeah. That's gold. That's some gold. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I hate to shift, but I, I need, I need to get this out of you. <laughs> and it's me and the listeners are used to Chris has got to tell a stupid story to ask a question. So you, <laughs> well, when your whole profession has been storytelling, that's what happens. Okay. So for the audience, you were across the way from Rick and I at DesignerCon. You had a booth. And every year I do DesignerCon, this girl shows up. I can't remember her name. Not important right now. Who's an art student who who follows me and I keep giving advice for it. And so she shows up in my booth and she's like, Chris, look at what I've been drawing. Like, I don't know why she won't send this to me on Instagram. Anyways, and I'm like, great. But what you need to do is better layout design. And I'm like, Let's go look at Ruby's stuff. And you weren't there. I was like, oh, damn it. Ruby's not there. God forbid I have a bathroom break, Chris. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> but Rick and I were talking the whole time. And, and Rick was with me with this girl. And we we're like, you know, Ruby's got great graphic design skills. She's got great eyes. She's got great layout. And that doesn't, doesn't just happen. Now, here comes the question. In order to get there, you have to be influenced. You have to look at 
things and they can't, they might not even be in painting, right? What are your influences? Who have you stolen from? And I call it stealing because that's what Frank Miller called it to me. <laughs> so who have you stolen from? Who's your influences? Who's drove Ruby to be Ruby? Definitely, you know, the heavy metal magazine artist, uh, Frank Frazetta. I majored in art at UC Santa Cruz along with American Studies, but their, their program was extremely conceptual. And so I didn't and get really hard skills. So when I left college, I came down to LA and, and took classes everywhere. LA Figurative Art Academy and Art Center at night and Glenville Poo, like all, all these, you know, teachers that were, were around teaching like actual hard skills. And so they they were influences. So I was introduced to Egon Sheila at the time and he became one of, you know, my absolute favorites. So Saturday evening post, not Rockwell, one, one, his, like Rockwell's Lion Decker. Oh my God. He's like one of my absolute most favorite artists ever. I think he was just a genius. And he, like, I call him six stroke Lion Decker because he could, I think this is something a lot of people don't understand. It's almost the more rendering, like the, the less, to me, the less you understand form is in you're just copying photographs potentially. When you see someone who can create form in a matter of a few strokes and by understanding value, oh my God, it's genius. And Lion Decker was one of those people. I also think he was just so ahead of his time with like, you can look at some of his lion paint strokes and it's almost graffiti-esque. Like it's so academic. And then there's these like sharp geometric shapes too kind of like what I do in my distortion, mixing ge hard geometric shapes with soft kind of voluminous masses. So he was a huge one, huge one for me. Not to interrupt, and I'm with you on that, because I think the guy who animated Batman, the animated series, he stole from Decker. You like, you look, everyone goes, oh, he's got this soft and hard. I'm like, yeah, that's Decker. Like, and it's a one line. Yeah, that's Decker. Like, see it <laughs> yeah. and, and he was rockwell's you know greatest teacher like one of his greatest influences ruby this has been completely phenomenal where can people find you buy your book where can they check out your art because everyone needs to do so thank you my website is rubyroth.co and I'm Ruby underscore Roth, R-O-T-H on Instagram. Those are my primary outlets. You can get on my, my mailing list. Keep up with me and yeah, check in at any one of those places. And before we end, just tell everybody, agree with Rick, go buy the book. A friend recommended you before you were even across the way from me. So, and they rave about the book. So please get Ruby's book. And how we love to end the show is we always give our guests the Final word, it can be anything you want to say, the uh, anything you want to talk about, but the final word is yours, Ruby. Let's just say boom. Thanks for listening to another episode of Origins of Creative Journey, and we've got a special announcement from DesignerCon and 3D Retro. 
Valfra is coming to Vegas. Join us at the 3D Retro Store Saturday, February 17th from 3 to 5 p.m. Pacific for an artist signing to celebrate Valfra's newest limited collectible, the 6-inch vinyl figure Reptilia. This is the first time Valfra will be signing these for her fans, and quantities are limited, so make sure you show up early. There is also a special artist poker chip with every purchase, and as always, Vincent NFT membership holders get a discount. Don't miss out!